welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Christopher G. Bradley, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. We will discuss his new article, Business Entities as Skeleton Keys. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. Yeah. So as you know, uh, I think this article is totally fantastic and and super clever. But I want to start with just the real basics. So for listeners who don't know, what is a skeleton key? And why do you think that metaphor is appropriate for particular kinds of business entities? That's a great question. And I, so skeleton key is a key that under the way old locks used to work, you could kind of file down the little protrusions that make a, a key fit one particular lock. And if you filed them down in a particular way, certain kinds of locks um, would open with one key could open many different kinds of locks. So that the kind of metaphor is that you can use business entities to unlock all these um, types of transaction or types of relationship that you otherwise wouldn't, that would otherwise be locked to you um, as uh, participants in some kind of transaction. And cool. I just remember um, from being a child, and I actually I quoted a Scooby Doo book uh, at the very beginning of the paper because I, I think that I remember it from not from this book, but from watching an episode of the Scooby Doo cartoon when I was a kid, and and being fascinated by this idea. Yeah, I and mean, it was such a popular metaphor in a lot of popular culture. I mean, I remember them from when I was a kid in the seventies, but I don't know to what extent like old mechanical stuff like that is still <laughs> current for a lot of younger people. Um, so. In the paper, you use something called um, the Artist Reserve Rights Agreement or the Artist Contract as sort of an example of the phenomenon that that you're talking about and of how you can use business entities to accomplish things. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the Artist Contract is, um, what it was intended to accomplish, and sort of what were the problems with it being able to accomplish those goals. So the artist contract is this fascinating uh, 1971 project, which I found out about through you, as you well know. Um, and this whole project is largely due to a conversation that you and I had where you explained this phenomenon to me. And then we kind of talked through uh, one potential solution to it. So the, the, the problem it's intended to solve is that artists um, might want to retain certain rights in a piece of art that they sell. And for instance, they might, well, the, the prominent one is a economic right. So the right in a future, if the art appreciates in value and then the collector sells it for a, a huge profit, then the artist might feel entitled to a cut of that. After all, it's partially probably due in most cases due to the reputational, the art, the work the artist has done either in subsequent works of art or in doing press and kind of developing a reputation that the art has, that has helped make the art appreciate in value. And so the artist, and there's this great story of uh, Robert Rauschenberg getting incensed when a collector sold a piece of art for a huge profit, and he wanted a cut of it. And so the contract includes a provision that says the artist gets 15% of any future appreciation, any future sale of the art. But there's also other rights that are kind of interesting to think through um, that aren't just about money, but it's about the artist uh, under the contract has the right to exhibit the art. Uh, I think it's up to six weeks every five years and uh, has the right to be consulted by any repairs that are done on the art. Um, and these kind of protections, you know, again, it kind of makes sense. I mean, the artist cares about the artwork. The artwork will speak uh, to any viewers about the artist's skill and kind of creativity. And so 
the artist, it's just a, the contract is an interesting, you know, legal manifestation of this uh, undeniable connection that persists even after a sale between an artist and their work of art. The problem is that under legal doctrines, um, this contract is, is not enforceable. So as to the first, uh, when the artist initially sells the art, most of it is enforceable. I mean, you, you, we can sign a contract that says, I'll um, consult you before I repair your piece of art. Um, it does violate uh, a copyright law doctrine called the first sale doctrine um, by requiring that a collector, before they exhibit the art, um, get the consent of the artist. And that, that is a violation of this copyright doctrine, as we kind of explore in the paper. Uh, you know, and, and that's a, a limitation, but it's a fairly narrow one. Um, but then after, if the initial collector were to sell the art to a, another collector who wasn't informed of the art or of the contract, this would become a real problem. And uh, under our law, I think the best interpretation of our current kind of existing law is that the subsequent collector would not be bound by the contract. Um, and this is a real problem because the contract does requires the initial collector to inform a subsequent buyer about the contract and about the protections and all that and, and get them to agree to it before the, before the art changes hands. But if that initial person kind of, you know, leaves the picture and um, you know, doesn't comply with those obligations, the artist can really be left in the lurch. So um, it then becomes a battle between this kind of innocent third party subsequent collector and the artist um, who claims that there's these limitations on the way that the collector can use the art. And under our current law, the, that dispute would, would, I think, be settled in favor of the new collector. So if this innocent third party buys the art um, from the kind of bad actor, uh, first collector, then the second collector will, will win the battle between uh, themselves and the artist with respect to most of these protections. So they'll get the art kind of free of all these restrictions. And that frustrates the purpose of the contract. Um, it, it, you know, the art is presumably accepted a lower value, a lower payment, you know, for the initial sale because they wanted these additional protections, which are costly. And so the artist kind of ends up um, um, stuck in that situation. So that's the fundamental dilemma of the artist contract. Okay. Okay. So if I may, then the idea is that artists want to have kind of a long-term set of rights in the artwork they produce that runs with the artwork, as it were, that inheres in the artwork no matter who ends up uh, buying it or owning it and no matter you know how many transactions in the artwork that there are. And that f basically contract doctrines and other legal doctrines preclude artists from making that a reality? Yes, exactly. And uh, there's work by you on this point. There's work by, uh, you know, kind of art historians and art critics on this point. There's also some, a great series of articles by Henry Hansman uh, and Marina Santilli on these kind of rights. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's interesting that, that Europe, European countries, a lot of other countries have some form of these rights in the, what they call moral rights. So moral rights include the right of an artist in a piece of art, even after the sale of the art, um, to, you know, for the art to be protected in certain ways, to be attributed to the artist, not to be defiled in certain ways. And so it's, it's interesting. This is kind of the artist contract is a way of making into a private agreement um, what in other, a lot of other countries is legislated. And we have some legislation in this regard in the United States, but as I discussed in the paper, not much. 
And, and so this is an attempt to, to kind of get a private arrangement that will provide those kind of rights. Right, right. So it, 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 it's kinds of rights that could be created by the government, but since the government has largely decided not to do it, then artists want to do it on their own. But it seems like a lot of the more traditional tools aren't really available to them. And so then the question becomes, A, you know, why not? And B, are there alternative ways of doing it? Yeah, exactly. And and those I don't really get into those policy questions so much in this paper. I think and um again, I the Hansman and Santilli articles are really good. There's other work that's very powerful on these points. There's an argument to be made that 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 you should be able to to reach these kind of agreements. They should be enforceable with respect to art. Uh, these doctrines really developed in a, in a world where of where you're contemplating a different kind of personal property where you don't want to encumber you know, um, just random pieces of personal property with these, the possibility of these encumbrances that you buy something at a flea market and you're not aware that, you know, that lamp can't be used, um, after 6 PM, you know, that would be a silly, uh, encumbrance to, to permit to go forward. But with respect to art objects and in light of this kind of interesting relationship between artists and their art, there's a good argument to be made. And, and, and these articles have made, um, kind of interesting arguments about how these things should be enforceable. Cool. So in your paper, you talk about how it might be possible for artists and maybe by extension, other people to use business entities to solve the problem, I guess, that they can't contract for the kind of rights that, that they want. Um, How does that work? What kind of business entities are you talking about? And what would artists have to do in order to sort of achieve the same goals by different means? Yeah. So I'm fascinated by modern business entity law. It is um, kind of really a remarkable tool that's really developed. uh, I mean, it's been a long gradual development, but really um, since the nineties when the limited liability company uh, became ascendant, that you just see a remarkable uh, kind of toolbox. Um, And I say remarkable, I I think there's good and bad aspects of this. Um, I quote, one of the things I quoted earlier on the paper is the Delaware uh, LLC Act, which says, it is the policy of this chapter to give the maximum effect to the principle of freedom of contract and to the enforceability of limited liability company agreements. So the cardinal principle here is the parties can do whatever they want in these agreements. I mean, there's very narrow limitations. Uh, one of the things they can do that people might be surprised at is they can get rid of all duties um, between the members of a limited liability company to each other, uh, aside from the duty of good faith and fair dealing, which sounds very grand, but actually is a very, very narrow duty. Um, and uh, the, the flexibility, that, that just the cheapness, I mean, these things to start an LLC, you can do it for a couple hundred dollars. You will never owe more than a couple hundred dollars um, in annual fees on it. You don't have to disclose practically anything about the parties who are involved in the LLC. Um, and th- so I, I've been long fascinated by this and trying to, to kind of think through uh, the many ways in which this is kind of potentially problematic or kind of what, what these things do. And um, well, so there's a solution to the artist contract problem through uh, a, a business, modern business entities like an LLC. So my proposal is you put the, uh, art instead of selling the art to the collector, you put the art into an LLC, and you know Mona Lisa LLC, and you, what you sell to the buyer of the Mona Lisa is a membership interest in the LLC, 
and not the painting itself. So they get to put the painting in their house, um, but they don't actually own the painting outright. The LLC owns the painting, and what they own is a membership interest in the LLC. The artist retains another membership interest in the LLC, and because of this powerful agreement called the operating agreement for an LLC, you can divvy up rights however you want. So the artist membership interest will come with very narrow rights that let them you know, veto ex- exhibitions. They, it lets them get 15% of any profit on any sale. And uh, you know, it lets them get six weeks of uh, to exhibit it themselves out of every five years, whatever else you want to put in there. And then all the other rights will go with the membership interest that's sold to the collector. And uh, what this means is that if the collector tries to sell the art uh, themselves, it's an unauthorized sale of LLC property. It doesn't work. Um, they can only the collector can only sell their membership interest in the LLC, and that what that does is that preserves the artist's um, rights will run with the the painting, which is exactly uh, as you said it. That's what we were trying to accomplish in the first place. So, would there any be any time limitation or anything on on how long that could last for? Um. No, I mean, you could draft the operating agreement to like, the original artist contract. All obligations ended 21 years after the death, the later of the death of the artist or the artist's spouse. So you kind of had a, a natural uh, sunset there, but you, there's no, you could do it however you wanted. You could have it go on, you know, the artist's membership interest could pass to the artist's heirs and could conceivably go on. Uh, after that point, so no, I mean that one of the one of, and I should have mentioned this. One of the powerful aspects of business entities is their perpetual existence. They are individual legal persons that can continue in perpetuity. Right, and in, in the paper you focus on LLCs. Are there other business entity forms that could be used in the same way? And are there advantages to using LLCs rather than any alternative forms? The there are alternatives. So, uh, so the, the you know the familiar corporation that we think of, the Delaware Corporation, um, has it's a little bit less flexible than the LLCs. That's a reason that you might not desire that form, and there's some tax reasons not to desire it. You could probably do it. It would just be a little bit more limiting. There's actually something called the statutory trust that is even more flexible than LLCs, and it's basically has no default form. It just kind of uh, is really all just whatever the parties want it to be. But, but uh, that remains fairly unfamiliar to a lot of uh, lo- corporate lawyers. And, and so it, it probably would be less desirable, although it's certainly a possibility. I mean, actually, I want to acknowledge that what's interesting is that business, modern business entity law it is new, uh, but a lot of aspects of it are old. I mean, trust, you could do a lot of what we're talking about through just a normal old common law trust where uh, the artist, you know, um, you know, grants the, the, the painting to the trust and then is uh, one of the beneficiaries of the trust and the trust documents kind of divvy up the rights. Um, there are some reasons why a trust is a little bit less reliable of a tool than uh, an LLC probably. But, uh, you know, in creative people, I mean, John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company uh, was, was formed um, ultimately into a trust uh, which of course later was was the subject of antitrust laws, but it was formed into a trust because corporate forms of that day didn't permit corporations, kind of sprawling multi-state corporations, the way that he wanted, and so they, you know, kind of fit the square peg into the round hole by using the device of the trust. So creativity in this kind of area has been around for a long time. What's striking to me is that we now have 
uh, it's all kind of very above board and um, fully recognize that, you know, you can, you can use these LLCs and that freedom of contract is paramount, that there's practically no disclosure, that it's very cheap, that you don't really have to have any duties to each other. And that strikes me as, as somewhat new. But the short answer to your question is, yes, there's other ways you could do it. The LLC really is just the lowest transaction cost form of doing it um, uh, under the current law, as, as far as I can tell. Right. So, I mean, it does sound very creative indeed, but, you know, what some people call creative, other people might call like doing an end run around the law, which mm-hmm. normally we, we don't like. And I mean, it, it sounds like there's in the artist contract case, it sounds like there's scenarios or circumstances where it's in fact a situation where the law is frustrating parties from bargaining for a relationship that might be mutually beneficial to them and potentially uh, socially beneficial uh, as well. Um, but but what if there are limitations on contracting that you know in that context that wouldn't be uh, beneficial? I mean, should artists be able to contract around? Uh, provisions that might have some kind of broader social purpose? Yeah. So fundamentally, I think that, I mean, I I love the way you stated all all of that. And the balance has, my point really is that the balance has swung very far in favor of permitting private contracting. And the way that it's done so is through this vessel of modern business entity law. I mean, I, I think a broader theme of this paper is that the hegemony of business entity law has sort of gone in some ways unquestioned. And what I would like to do is prompt people to think harder about whether this balance is being struck in the correct way. I think the artist contract idea that I propose should make people queasy. I'm actually worried because in some when I've presented this paper a couple of times, people maybe aren't queasy enough about it. They think, well, yeah, actually, this sounds like a pretty good solution to the problem. Um, I've repeatedly been encouraged to create my own LLC and to put this idea into that LLC, which I don't even know. Um, I, I don't think it's <laughs> likely to be that profitable, but I, I think it should make people queasy. And I try to give a couple of other examples in the paper, which we can get to in a second if you want, where I, I think they're just definitely being used to end run around policies that I think a lot of people would think are valid, perhaps. And and I think that we need to find a way to think about rebalancing these issues or um, giving courts tools where they really, if they really are used inequitably, the court has the right analytical fl- framework and the right tools to strike down the action. Right now, I think the courts have very few tools. I mean, so you kind of think of veil piercing policy, or you think of certain kinds of equitable doctrines or something. But it, it's the, the court's tools are are uh, not not very sharp and and. Um, and uh, not very clear. And I think that um, they kind of risk being used too broadly by some courts and too narrowly by others. So I think, it, I think it's a matter, I really want people to, to, to be uncomfortable in some level, on some level with what I'm proposing. And so in your paper, the artist contract is really only a sort of illustration of a broader principle. And it seems as if this same kind of model is adaptable to a range of other scenarios. So I, w- I wonder if you could give some other examples of people of ways people might use LLCs to accomplish something that contract law or some other um, body of legal doctrine would make difficult or impossible. 
Yeah, so I talk in depth about a couple of examples in the paper, but in the introduction, I try to just give a survey of all the different fields of law where you could see those fields of law being undermined by uh, the power of business entity law. So a couple of those examples are how you can use these elaborate structures to avoid international laws and regulations, such as sanctions imposed on foreign leaders and groups. And I have some evidence of that, and this is the way that you do it. And in that case, it's pretty covert, but what you're doing is basically it's really hard to get information about who's behind some of these LLCs. And so if a payment is going to a Delaware LLC, it might ultimately going, go, be going to somebody who's you know, an oligarch somewhere who is you know, the subject of sanctions. But regulators might have a very, very hard time figuring that out. Um, you know, tax avoidance purposes. I mean, this is a highly problematic, uh, highly controversial um, set of actions that largely take place through using these shell companies to, to hold assets and then to license the assets to the main company. If you start reading about what, and these are large companies, if you read about what Apple does, what Amazon does, they will defend their actions and you know, you could argue that even owe a duty to shareholders to maximize their tax benefits, you know, and uh, this is a highly problematic area. And a lot of it does take place because business entity law is so powerful. Um, so securities law is rife for this kind of, uh, you know, these kind of uh, games where you have a shell company that you take public and then that shell company can acquire a private company um, and, voila, the private company has become a public company, but without going through the elaborate uh, initial public offering requirements. So that's, this is a well-known kind of uh, end run around securities law that um, that we've been faced with. So I, I mean, that gives a flavor for some of them. Um, election law was actually, like, one of our colleagues mentioned that you know, there's been all this dis this um, debate about what, how much should donors to these kind of super PACs and all of these organizations, how much disclosure should they be required to make? And you know, it's clear to me that if you are willing to use business entities in a in an elaborate, creative way, you can get around a fair bit of these disclosures at least for a long time. What sometimes people will do nowadays is you do a, you, you find the way that will let you keep your identity secret for the longest, at least. And then ideally it won't come out until after the election is over that it was being funded by, you know, whatever interest group would be politically unpopular. And so the, that interest group can kind of hide its involvement until it wins the election. And they're like, Oh, actually this was funded by, not by grassroots, you know, contributors, but by, by some outside organization. And so there too, even in election law, you see, that you can use these shell entities to kind of get up to things that you might think that it, it's just, you know, just, you know, you kind of just have a rule of it just ain't right. Uh, you know, it, it, it certainly makes you a little bit queasy um, to, to hear these examples. So uh, reading your paper, I was, I was struck by the observation that, um, you know, there's kind of a, a reductionist theory of the, of the firm or of the business entity as being, you know, nothing but a nexus of contracts. And in a weird way, it's like your paper sort of turns that on, yeah. on its head and says, well, really contracts are just a subset of, you know, internal relations of, of business entities. Um, you know, how should that cause us to think about the kind of public policy relationship between business entity law and contract law? 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I've been struggling with how to articulate that, and I think that's something I'll have to revisit in future work. I mean, I do. There's a, a kind of fun way of saying it, which is that yeah, a contract, a, a business is a is a has been described as a, as a nexus or a bundle of contracts. But really, you can also view some of these transactions as bundles of business entities um, that are being created and kind of moved around. And um, I think, what does it do to our thinking more generally? I, I think w- one thing that I've come away with is there's, these, there's great work out there within the realm of commercial and business law dealing with the way that sophisticated businesses use uh, subsidiaries use business entities to kind of accomplish various legitimate kind of economically valid commercial purposes. So Tony Casey has a marvelous article called the new corporate web that, that does this. And he, he synthesizes a lot of other work that's out there on this. Um, you can take a more skeptical view. Lynn Lopucky's article from the Yale Law Journal in 1996, I think called the death of liability is a more skeptical view of similar practices, actually. I mean, I, I, I have learned a ton from reading the business law scholarship and the commercial law scholarship, but I don't see as much in that scholarship is how this is used um, on a kind of more retail level, on a more everyday level. And when you have these, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of, of LLCs being created every year. And what are they being used for? So they're not all being used. You know, Exxon, we kind of know, we have some idea of why Exxon uses LLCs. Some of those purposes you might think are good. Some of them you might think are bad. Um, But what we don't have a a real view of, I don't think, is how they're used on a more ground level. Um, And I think that in some cases it might be disturbing to discover how they're used on on a more basic level. And so I think there's room to extend what we have in terms of theory, which is valuable, I kind of survey it and I've got a lot out of it, but to extend that theory to um, kind of uh, to cover this, these other uses, I don't think that's been done yet. And I, you're, you know, maybe this is all a big dodge to say, I don't have a grand unifying theory. I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. what I'm puzzled by is what um, you and I joked about a title for this paper being how to do things with LLCs. I think another title that I thought about is what are business entities good for? You know, what, what is it? And right now the statutes say any lawful purpose. So what you're, what you put is the purpose of the entity is any lawful purpose. And that's what the statute says is an okay thing to put any lawful purpose. Well, well, I mean, okay, (laughs) but it's a bit question begging because what is a lawful purpose? Uh, I guess it just means anything um, as long as you're not a specific law against it, but we've Mm -hmm. discovered how you can use uh, business entities to, to undermine various legal regimes. And I think that mm-hmm. would still qualify as a lawful purpose. Uh, it, it's Maybe it shouldn't, but I think it currently does. So you, you really kind of get back to these existential questions about um, what are we doing here? And, and um, yeah, I don't have a theory yet. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe, maybe by the time I write the next paper, I will. Uh-huh. So, so as you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of the actual need for the artist contract in the first place, in the sense that my my sense is that you know, kind of theory and history show that it was a effort to kind of create a contractual relationship that wasn't actually serving the needs of anyone in practice. And that to the extent that the relevant parties actually wanted to form similar kinds of relationships or distribute rights in the relevant ways, they could more or less accomplish what they wanted on on their own. But But I love the way you use it in your paper almost as an example of how you can accomplish any goal using this kind of structure that you 
any goal that you want to, um, no matter how, no matter whether or not it's one that people would actually want to achieve in, in the real world. Um, but I'm wondering, um, you know, where do you anticipate people are most likely to sort of operationalize LLCs in the kind of way that you describe? Do you think that maybe they're already doing it and we just don't have a good picture of it yet? And, you know, to what extent do you think your paper is essentially describing to some market participants in a more kind of programmatic, systematized way what it is that they're already doing? So uh, that's a great question. I, and I think that uh, I think that in some realms they are already doing it a lot. And I, I gave one of the examples, one of the two examples where I work out more fully is in the real estate context. So real estate transactions have all kinds of requirements on them, a lot of formalities. Um, real estate uh, uh, brokers have to have all these licenses. It can be very burdensome. And so one way to get around a lot of that, and I've got a, a case from uh, uh, the state of Kentucky actually where a, a sale of an LLC interest was deemed not to be a real estate transaction. It's a transaction of personal property. Even though the LLC was merely a holding company for real estate. So effectively what happened was a real, a piece of real estate changed hands, but for the court look, took a formal perspective and said, no, this is a sale of personal property because an LLC membership interest is personal property. That's the end of the story. So they said the broker fee, uh, the broker licensing laws were not a problem. And the, you know, various recording requirements and other real estate transaction formalities. In that case, it was just a statute of frauds issue. I think they, they didn't have to comply with those rules either. So they end run around the real estate transaction laws. My understanding is that takes place a lot. And that if you look, and actually I had a, one of our colleagues who's a real estate specialist recently told me that he looked around just where he lived and there were um, lots of uh, LLCs and kind of other uh, corporate entities that were the owners, the, the the former owners of the properties. And so, for instance, if you have a condo building with eight condos in it and you want to sell those to, to eight different people, it makes a lot of sense just to say this is a, you know, 122 Pine Street LLC, and then you sell membership interests that are related to each unit uh, instead of selling the, the real, real property itself. That may be good. That may be bad. But again, I think it is very common, actually. Let me take one example that I think is clearly, in my view anyway, uh, problematic, which is the bankruptcy exemption example that I give in the paper. So in this example, um, Texas has these homestead protections, which are intended really to just prevent their paternalistic laws, intended to present, prevent people from um, uh, taking out loans secured by their homestead under a lot of conditions. Um, and the, the way that people have found around this is they just create an LLC. And so instead of me granting a lien on my homestead, it's me moving my homestead into uh, Chris LLC. And then Chris LLC grants a lien on the homestead that it owns. Well, because an LLC can't have a homestead, it doesn't get this special kind of protection. Then uh, the homestead's encumbered and I can get the, the, the loan proceeds and I can spend them however I want to spend them. That seems clear to me. Now, you may think that the homestead rules are kind of silly and, and overbroad, and that's fine. And a lot of people do think that about those particular homestead laws. But it makes little sense to me to allow that kind of transfer to an LLC when it's just a one-member LLC that's just intended purely for the sake of getting around these mm. restrictions. 
that makes little sense to me to allow that to go forward. And yet Texas courts have said that as long as you comply with certain formalities, that transaction um, will be valid. Now, there's a little bit of a division of the case law on that, but but the majority of courts pretty clearly say that that transaction um, can be made to be valid um, if done right. And that to me seems highly problematic. I mean, it seems to me like either get rid of the exemption law or curtail it or whatever you want to do, but don't don't force people to do the silly uh, transfer for an LLC. It just doesn't, I don't see the, the rationale um, to justify that. Yeah. No, I love those examples because they're almost like the perfect mirror image of the artist contract and the desire to get around it, where the artists, in effect, want the artwork to be treated as a subcategory of real property Mm -hmm. so it can be encumbered. And by contrast, the people engaging in real estate transactions want to get out of some of the inconvenient features of the form of property in which they've invested or, or, or want to invest. Um, so, so in closing, I guess what I, what I'd love for you to reflect on is sort of when should we let people use these forms to accomplish goals they couldn't otherwise accomplish uh, in the first place? And it, you know, should we make them use the forms at all? I mean, if it's okay to do it with the forms, why shouldn't they just be able to contract for what they want? Yeah. So what, this is really the the uh, payoff question here, right? Um, I, I mean, I should say before I jump into what, and I have an analytical framework that I uh, lay out in the paper. I, that said, I at the end, I acknowledge that there are institutional capacity concerns here. I mean, so you may say, if you're the kind of person who just thinks uh, policymakers are just going to botch it no matter what, you may say it's better to just let people use these tools of contracting go crazy, don't restrict them, uh, except in a very extreme cases, because most of the time, uh, policymakers are going to mess it up. That That is a position that has some evidence behind it. And I, uh, you know, kind of, I, I, it's not resolvable by me right now, but I, but I do think that that concern should be acknowledged. But if you look at it purely analytically, what you would like to do is you would like to say, look, sometimes regular, I should acknowledge, I, I like this part, sometimes regulations are silly. And so you might take, for instance, the real estate uh, formalities. You might say, well, those don't really have that much of a purpose anymore. Uh, We should let people get around those. And so then in that situation, I think that's a form of what – there's this great article by Jordan Berry and uh, Elizabeth Pullman, and uh, it's called Regulatory Entrepreneurship. And it's a fantastic article, and it's about businesses whose business model includes – overturning stupid licensing laws, basically. So Uber is the example that everybody thinks of. And so they were like, look, we can just become so popular that nobody's going to stand in our way. They're going to let us do this because these kind of taxi regulations don't make a lot of sense and are inefficient. And so that's the kind of argument of the piece. And I think that in this situation, you could see something like that taking place. You could see if the real estate laws really aren't that good and are kind of needless, why not just let them all get around them using the LLCs? And ultimately, yes, I agree with what you said you shouldn't even require them to go through LLCs. You should just let them get around them altogether. And there's a good article about um, secure transactions and bankruptcy by El, uh, Ofer Eldar and um, Andrew Verstein that's coming out. Um, and that, that they kind of make an argument about that. And I acknowledge that in the paper. Um, and, and that's in a different context. But I, I think that's a. I think there's a strain of cases that fall in that camp. Then there's the situation where Parties are just using it just to get around an otherwise valid statute, a statute that, or a regulation that has protects the public in some way. It might be a paternalistic kind of protection, like the homestead exemption, or it might be a 
protecting against externalities kind of um, regulation, like environmental law or something. And in that case, you know, you really should think the court should not respect the, the business form at that point. You say, look, if this is really just motivated to get around these valid laws and you're just, you're just using the business form to impose a bunch of externalities on society or to undermine our you know, paternalistic kind of consumer protection um, laws, we're not going to let you do that. And whether or not you use an LLC, no way. So that's one category, I think. Then I think the bulk of category, the bulk of these situations, you have to kind of balance. And you say, well, there's probably some, there often is some economic purpose being served by using a business entity. And you have to weigh against that um, any externalities that are being dispensed with due to the to going through a business entity format. So um, and this is a lot of what, and the reason I say it's the majority, maybe it's just because it's the majority of when you see corporations doing this kind of stuff. You know, um, the example I use in the paper is securitization, where businesses stick a set of assets into a separate entity in order to avoid having those assets go into their bankruptcy proceeding, um, if, if there is one. And that, I think, you know, there's powerful arguments for that being an economically beneficial action. Um, it really does yield benefits to parties um, and arguably to society at large. On the other hand, it can be abused. It has been abused. It had something to do with the collapse of Enron. I mean, it's 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 caused a lot of concerns. And I think in that situation, you really would ideally, uh, if you were the, you know, um, um, you know, if you were Socrates or somebody, and you you could be could weigh all these things out. You would say, well, I want to figure out is it more beneficial to society, right, to let this kind of thing happen. Or it, would, it be, would society be better off if we kept these protections against externalities in place? And, you know, that's the balance you would like to strike. Um, how to do that in a particular case, though, I argue is very tough and, and would be contextual in each given use of this. That's the problem is the skeleton key works in every lock. But, mm-hmm. you, but in order to weigh whether it should work in a given lock, you would have to, you have to really look at the lock very carefully, uh, which is problematic. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. I love it. Um, well, Chris, it's been really fantastic talking to you about this paper, which um, I think is, like I said, super clever, and I really hope uh, people check it out. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a, it's been a pleasure, and I love the podcast. What in the world is truth in lending? What is finance charge? What does the annual percentage rate mean? Why is the deferred payment price usually more than the cash price? Listen, if you've got a credit card in your pocket or a charge account at a store and you don't know what these words mean, then you could be spending a lot more money for things than you really have to. You should always know the cost of credit before you buy. This message is brought to you by the Federal Trade Commission, Washington, D.C.